And it's in this portion that it gets very, very deep and complicated in some ways and profound. Now, he's done this once before at the end of chapter 2. You remember when he cites our Lord's perfect example of suffering righteously under unrighteous authorities. And it's there in that part of the Scripture that Peter is emphasizing the imitation of the Lord's behavior, how we are to imitate his behavior since he was and is the perfect example of how we're to endure hardships. But here at the end of chapter 3, Peter then focuses on an entirely different aspect of Jesus' suffering that is less about how we are to imitate his example and his behavior and more about how we're to be inspired by his behavior. So in chapter 2, we're told how the Lord didn't utter any threats back to those uh, that slandered him because that's exactly how we are also to face hardships. And here in chapter 3, we're going to be told why the Lord bore such harsh treatment while on earth so that we can glean from his example for motivation in our own suffering as well. So chapter 2 describes the behavior that we can imitate, and chapter 3 describes the actions that we can't imitate. Chapter 2 describes a model for us to follow. Chapter 3 describes a motivation for us to admire. In essence, these verses gives us a Christology for times of calamity. That's going to be the title of my message, a Christology for times of calamity. You know, one of the most important, amazing aspects of the first letter of Peter that he has written to the church is that the sufferings he describes are rooted in our everyday relationships. The relationships that you and I deal with every day, it's not very general, it's very, very specific. When writing to his flock, Peter doesn't predict that the sufferings that might come through, you know, some kind of future global nuclear war. He doesn't describe the hardships associated with worldwide plagues or diseases or disasters of any kind. Instead, the great apostle ties all of the sufferings that the Christians are going to have, and everyday folks like us in this decade as well, are going to be through local authorities, employers, and spouses. Did you get that? The the struggle that he's going to focus on is how do we endure suffering with local authorities, employers, and even our spouses. And Peter resists the tendency just to warn us of any kind of catastrophic thing that's going to happen, even false teaching, as he does in his second letter. That's where he warns us there. But instead here, he decides to focus on hardships that come within the four walls of our tiny world, the relationships that we deal with. The sufferings that Peter describes, get this, happen at home, happen at home. The suffering that Peter describes in the midst of this unbelieving world and all the threats that it gives us is going to be manifested in the simple, daily, ordinary, private routines that we have with the people that we know the best. And the issue that is the common denominator between all of this ordinary domestic relationships is the issue of authority and submission especially in relationship to unbelievers. That is his focus. So the tendency for all of us who are Christians when we are suffering unrighteously is to buck against the one who's making us suffer. We tend to resist, especially when the one that's making us suffer is an unbeliever who has power over us. The examples that Peter uses are common. When the government, the ultimate earthly authority, tells you to submit to their proclamations, Peter says that we are to submit. If taxes are unfair, submit. If the regulations don't make sense, submit. 
If the laws seem harsh, submit. All unlawful laws, all lawful laws, I should say, that doesn't go against God's word. Why? Because giving honor, and help me as you try to wrap your head around this, giving honor to the king or governor or president or mayor or their request, even when they're unreasonable, shuts the mouths of unbelievers when they try to find fault with your Christian testimony. That doesn't mean that you willingly submit to ungodly laws. We've seen that practiced even here at our church, as was the case for Peter in the book of Acts, where we was told, never speak about Christ again. Well, of course, you're going to go against that. You cannot submit to that. In that case, Peter asked the question, is it right to submit to your commands or to God's commands? You be the judge, Act 4, verse 19. In other words, if you or anyone commands me to submit to something that is clearly defying God's command, then I must obey God, and I have to disobey you. But for the most part, those things being aside, Peter says, unless earthly authorities tell you to openly defy the will of God, you're to submit. You're to submit. And he says the same thing concerning earthly masters to whom you are serving like a slave. These are the equivalent of our modern-day employers. If they're harsh with you, submit. If they demand more from you than you think is fair, submit. If they're asking you to break the law, then, of course, that's a different issue altogether. But for the most part, even if they are unreasonable, their demands, Peter says, still submit. And all of this is heading toward a common goal. If you submit, listen, if you submit in the name of Christ to earthly authorities, especially when they're making you suffer, You're doing so for a reason. Chapter 2, verse 15. To silence the ignorance of foolish men. They can't speak against you. They they can't speak against you if you're a believer and you're doing doing what they ask of you. In chapter 2, verse 20, right there in the same chapter, when you suffer patiently under unjust circumstances for Christ's sake, then this finds favor with God. But there's even more. Chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, that when married women who are believers submit to their unbelieving husbands, that the goal of that submission is to win their husbands to Christ as they observe your godly way of dealing with them, as they see how you endure their unjust behavior. So the goal here in righteous suffering under an unbelieving authority is evangelistic. Does that make sense? It's evangelistic. It is to remove all their objections. Don't allow them to have anything that they can point to you and say, aha. It is to give them no argument against your redeemed life. It is ultimately set on bringing them salvation. The goal is for their coming to Christ. And that's why back in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. And what that means is that when you submit to unbelieving authority, you are actually creating a platform for the gospel. You're creating a platform for the gospel to invade their lives so that when Christ returns, that's the day of visitation, they can glorify God because they too submitted to his lordship. So when you see you, when they see you submitting to Lordship of Christ, it's a platform for them to help to understand that they too must submit to the Lordship of Christ. That's the idea. This is the pattern of our Lord for sure. And so for the rest of the chapter of three, 
Peter has been giving us the pattern for that kind of submission, the pattern, the kind of submission that lives for Christ in an unbelieving world because we understand that our Christian behavior acts like a living ambassador for the gospel of Christ. Now, when we live righteously before an unbelieving world with the great hope that we might bring them to God, that our testimony, if you will, might lead our senators and bosses and presidents and unbelieving spouses to Christ, then that is the goal of everything. And it begins in the home. It starts in the home, and then it spreads to the workplace, and then it culminates in city hall. Because all that we do in the way we live is supposed to reflect the hope that we have in God. Now, the last time I came to you with this section of First Peter, I helped you go through some principles of living righteously in an unrighteous world. If you remember, we were in chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. And now, if you weren't with us last time, uh, it's important for you to know that we covered three of the four points that I wanted to go into. I didn't speak about it at the time, but I, I want to explain, because of my time ran out on me, or I spoke too much, that uh, as we're going through the sec- section, I have one last kind of point to follow up with before I begin this section here. It's a very important point. It makes a lot of sense, I hope. Verse 16 and 17 of chapter 3 says that we are to keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, this is vital. This is very, very important. This is where most people blow it right here. You need to make sure that regardless of the accusations of others, regardless of how wrong they are against you, regardless of how much pleasure they seem to take out of gaining and making your life miserable, that there are some things you need to restrain and the right things inside your heart you have to have focused on. Your conscience, listen to this, your conscience, that part of you that only you and God know needs to be clean. That part of you, your conscience, needs to be able to say in your own heart, I am truly and really trusting Christ in the midst of all of this. I am really and truly suffering by doing good because he is the Lord of my life And I crucify those deep resentments and those bitter thoughts at the foot of the cross so my conscience is clean and I can have a good forward living life, upward living life. And you know what? If you do that, if you have a clean conscience as you're suffering, two results are going to happen. Either, verse 16b, those who slander you will be put to eternal shame, or back to verse 1 of chapter 3, they will be won to Christ by the excellencies of your suffering. That's pretty amazing results of suffering. You're either going to put those people to eternal shame or they'll be won to Christ. Either you will be vindicated by the judgment of Christ or by the salvation of Christ. Does that make sense? You're going to be vindicated one way or the other by your righteous suffering. Now, we don't always see that, I understand, in this life. Sometimes people get away with abuse for a long, long time. But God sees you, and God hears your cry, and God knows your heart. And, verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And even then, God still might, for his purposes, his timing, allow you to suffer. But I think that's very important. If God should will it so. 
if God should will it so in his timing because he does that sometime. We saw that all through the book of Job because that's what he does and that's what the father allowed even to happen to the son as we shall see. And that prepares us for our time this morning. After 17 very practical, very basic verses concerning how we ought to suffer righteously, Peter says, sometimes it is the will of God that you should suffer. Sometimes it is the will of God that you should suffer. And the greatest example that I could ever give you or that anyone could ever give you about how sometimes God wills even the most innocent of people to suffer the most hideous forms of injustice is through reminding you of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just remind us of the pattern of Christ's sufferings as he did in chapter 2. Instead, he dives into a very complex, very lofty kind of Christological examination of the purposes of Christ's sufferings. And he does this because in times of calamity, we need Christology. In times of calamity, we need a Christology that wears shoe leather. Because in times of calamity, sometimes we need a good dose of theology when really what we want is some good old-fashioned relief. And I say that because the way you think, the way I think about righteous suffering is vital. It's vital. And Peter here is telling us that we need to connect the circumstances of our calamity to our understanding of Christology, of of the person of Christ. Christology means our biblical understanding of Jesus Christ, how we think about Christ, how we understand Christ, our study of Christ. And so seemingly really out of nowhere, Peter launches into five verses here, explanation of Christ's sufferings that constitute what most commentators say is the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament in the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther wrote, concerning these verses, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means, end quote. That's Martin Luther. So how am I going to do? Uh, (laughs) So he says that because there's at least 18, listen to this, major theories about these verses that I'm about to read. In one commentary on the author devoted 16% of the entire work just on these verses, which is a lot. Now, with all that said, clearly the original recipients of this letter, just to encourage you, knew exactly what Peter was saying. It's just given the separation of 2,000 years in our time, we're not as certain about every single part of this meaning. All that to say, if we, could, we can't be positive about exactly what Peter's implying here in the verses from verse 18 forward, what we're going to find is Peter is implying, we can't be positive about what he's implying. We can't be maybe positive about exactly. I'm going to actually put a couple sermons on this, just so you know. This isn't my only sermon on this passage. It's probably going to be more like three. Um, God can and might, this is for certain, God can and might allow you and I to suffer under unrighteous circumstances in this life because that's exactly what he did to his own son. You got that? That, that's for sure. That is the principle and implication. And if he allowed it to happen to the most perfect life that ever lived, then certainly he's going to allow it in our imperfect lives. That's the gist of the argument, regardless of the details and how they're understood, okay? That's the gist of it. It is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right than doing what is wrong. And he says that because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. 
Now, I don't have a fancy outline for you today, but I have some points that might help you think through this with me. This section seems to unfold in three sections. The first is the purpose of suffering in Christ, the picture of suffering from Noah's day, and the portrait of suffering in Christian baptism. And how those three, I'm going to repeat them just so you know, those sections connect to one another has been the source of a lot of argument and the spilling of a lot of ink. But for our purpose today, I just want to present you something that makes sense to me, and I believe it really does justice to the context that we have before us, even though it might differ at times with the most commonly held view that you've heard. And I say that because I'm going to give you something maybe just a little bit different than what's in the MacArthur Study Bible, just so you know, but it's okay. I've been approved. Uh, And it's just a little bit different than the majority of what the commentators would conclude. But since we really can't be sure... And the particulars, anyway, I want to present to you what seems most satisfying explanation to me. And all this being said, I want you to remember just this. And I know I've just unpacked a lot, and we're not going to go through all of it today. And it might even end early today because I didn't want to do it all in one section. Um, Peter's point, regardless, which of one of the 18 explanations that you accept, uh, is this. Righteous suffering in the hands of unrighteous authorities has its greater greatest example and inspiration in the life of Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, if he suffered for doing good, so could you. That's the main point. And I don't want to, you know, point to ever get lost in the explanation, which I think happens very often when you go through these various interpretations. Sometimes that can happen. We can't allow ourselves to lose the main idea from our Christology, which informs us as how we are to suffer. If we understand that Christ suffered under unrighteousness, then we can cling to the hope that we will suffer in the same way. If it was for him, it will be the same for us. So now let me read the text, okay? It's going to be chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. You can see what I'm saying. There's obviously a lot here to deal with. There's a lot in the text. So first, let's just begin in verse 18, which is the least controversial verse of all this section. And then we can look at it under the heading of the purpose of Christ's sufferings. If you're taking notes, the purpose of Christ's sufferings. Let me read that verse again, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is Christology 101. This is Christology 101, and it begins by telling us here the reason. The reason why we too might need to suffer according to the will of God, and he says it with the word for. For verse Four, verse 17 as well, but the four in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins. In other words, the reason I say it here 
is that suffering for good is better than suffering for what is, for what is wrong because for, that's what happened to Christ, okay? In some manuscripts, actually, it says, for Christ also suffered for sins, which in many ways is more fitting throughout the context of suffering. For Christ also suffered for sins instead of died for sins. The idea either way is that the most perfect man who ever lived, innocent, blameless, and holy, had to suffer in death for sins that he did not commit. Look at verse 18b, the just for the unjust. The just, him for the unjust, we. That's substitutionary atonement, just so you know. That's uh, vicarious righteousness given to us who would never deserve it. The just one, the only just one in whom there was no sin, died and suffered for those unjust sinners that one day would come to him. That's the idea. He took our place. He offered himself as a sacrifice and suffered under their harsh rule in order to provide a way to heaven for all who would believe. He did it once for all. Once for all, meaning that he will never have to repeat it ever again like the sacrifices of the Old Covenant where the Old Testament priest would offer over and over temple sacrifices and animals who would suffer and die, suffer and die, suffer and die. His sacrifice of himself was sufficient one time for all time. Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. I'll just read it to you. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, listen to this, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when he offered up himself, end quote. You see, that's why the new covenant is better than the old. That's why Christ's sacrifice is better than any other sacrifice. It was once for all, once for all. And the reason he allowed himself to suffer in this way, look at the end of verse 18, was so that he might bring us to God. So just stop there for a moment and and think with me. That he might bring us to God. This pattern, this is a pattern, not, not one that we can duplicate. We can't die for the sins of others. We can't believe our suffering saves anyone. But here the implication is that we must understand. When we suffer at the hands of an unrighteous, unbelieving world, especially under those that have authority over us, we're doing so with the knowledge that God can use our earthly sufferings to bring them to himself. It's evangelistic. It's a living testimony, the way we suffer. And we've been over this before, but it needs to be repeated just Again, chapter 3, verse 1 says to wives that when you submit to your husbands, those husbands that don't love Christ, honor his word, follow his ways, you are in that form of suffering, paving the road for their salvation to occur because you might win them without a word just by your behavior, your humble and chaste behavior. What behavior? Again, suffering in your home the way you suffer in the home, the way you take it day in and day out with no kind of response for them as they're evil against you, and yet your pattern is fixed on Christ. God uses righteous behavior as a means to open the eyes of the unbelieving opponents to the gospel. Christ himself suffered and died so that he might bring us to God. That's the pattern for us as well. We can't atone for anyone's sins. I think you know that. We can't 
atone for our own sins. Otherwise, there's no reason for Christ. But we can copy the pattern of our Lord by not only doing good, as chapter 2, verse 21 tells us, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Not only that, but also by understanding that righteous suffering at the hands of unrighteous authority is God's method of bringing the unbelieving world to salvation. So God saves through faith in Christ, but he attracts people to Christ through the way we act as believers. Though they might through how we love each other, how we submit to his lordship by submitting to earthly authorities that he has commanded us to submit to and even exemplified in his own life. That's our pattern. To put it in a different way, when you submit yourself to an unbelieving authority, you do so because you are saying, in essence, I know that you don't know my Savior. I know that you don't know Christ, but I want you to know him. So I am going to live before you the way he did because I want to win you to Christ for him. You know what is the opposite of that? The opposite of that is when you don't allow yourself to be zealous for good deeds by submitting yourself to unbelieving authority, you are saying their salvation is not important to you. You're saying that you don't mind if they stand condemned before God. You are saying that your salvation is all that matters to you, and that would be a tragedy. We heard it even this morning from Pastor John, but Romans chapter 9, that was not the heart of Paul. Paul says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish I were myself accused, separated for Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons. Paul was sitting there saying, I want their salvation so much that if it even could be possible, which it isn't, I would sacrifice my own salvation for them. So... When you're not allowing yourself to be zealous for good deeds by submitting even to unrighteous people, family, even government, then you are saying that they don't matter. Their eternal soul doesn't matter. And I want you to remember this piece of Christology next time your unbelieving spouse starts to yell at you, okay? I want you to think about this the next time your unbelieving boss calls you into the office and demands you to work overtime when you had made other plans. I want you to remember that when you desire to resist them and you want to assert yourself over them, our Lord would tell you, no, submit to them. I submitted to them. Submit to them because your kindness and patience and gentleness will remind them of me. And that's the way my father attracts the ungodly to the cross. But if you say, I continue to submit to them even when they're unreasonable, then they'll think that they've won. They'll think they've got it over me. If I allow my my wife or my husband to blow up at me over and over again, she'll think that's okay to do it, so I, I can't let that happen. Well, Peter says, and anticipates that kind of thinking, actually, I believe, so he reminds us that through though Christ suffered in this way for the purpose of bringing us to God, though they, look at the verse, end of verse 18, put him to death in the flesh. They crucified him. But, look at the rest, he was made alive in the spirit. What does that mean, alive in the spirit? Some people think of this as a possibility of speaking to the resurrection, and that is possible. But frankly, if it was a reference to his resurrection, 
it probably should say he was put to death in the flesh, but he was raised again in the flesh, right? That would make more sense because the resurrection was not just a resurrection of his spirit, right? It was of his body. So the re- if it was resurrection of his body, it was a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. So it seems that the point here is not that he was resurrected, though he was, but that though dead in the flesh, he was living in the spirit. And that makes sense. You could kill his body, but you cannot kill the eternal Christ. So while his body was in the grave, his spirit was alive. And all of that is vital for us to understand, especially in the hands of suffering. What do I mean by that? Look, they, they killed him, but they could not destroy him. They killed him, but they could not destroy him. They thought that when they had crucified him, that he was gone forever. But what they didn't understand was our Lord could never eternally die. He lives on. And you need to know that because that's good Christology. That's just good bibliology. That's just good Bible. If God has placed you in a position, in a situation in your life where you can't seem to see the end of the road for you, if God has allowed your circumstances to be such that you feel the crushing weight of condemnation and injustice and, and you are doing all you can to maintain a good witness where you are in your home before your kids, before your wife, if God has proposed a time of suffering at work or wherever you're being tested, then remember the example that your Lord, my Lord, suffered in that same way. He suffered knowing that he would bring many to God through suffering. He suffered the most hideous kind of suffering there is. He was spat upon. He was mocked and belittled. They tore his beard. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They tried him unjustly in a mock courtroom. He received no justice in this life. And yet they couldn't suffocate his life out of him. They put his flesh to death, but his spirit was alive, vindicated, victorious, triumphant, glorious. That's so important for you to understand. That's so vital. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you were blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. So back to verse 18 of chapter 3, it's really just a mini theology class, that one verse. It's like a, a Christological implication of Christ's sufferings as they impact life. And it's so vital and it's so important that you memorize and meditate and ponder with all your heart, what does that really mean? And, and at the end of this road comes triumph. At the end of this road, at the end of your suffering comes vindication, just so you know, if you're suffering for doing what is right. And that gives you hope, and hope is everything. But instead of ending this little Christology class in verse 18, Peter then begins to shift into a subject that I want to devote uh, a few messages to next time. Uh, next time I'll preach, and there'll be a little bit of time off, and then I'll come back. But I want to kind of set the stage for you today just so you can think about it with the time that I have left. Beginning in verse 19, Peter starts to speak of something that is disorienting to most of us because he starts to speak about proclaiming something to spirits and that they are in prison And then he connects those concepts to the days of Noah when he was building an ark, which is kind of odd when you think about it. 
but the most of the oddity is really connected to how some of these verses here have been translated, which we're going to see next time. And we're going to get a little grammar lesson at that time. Uh, Most people would say that Peter here starts to speak of the time after Jesus' death, before his resurrection, where he spiritually went to Hades and proclaimed his victory over death and sin to some spirits who they say were fallen angels or demons, if you will, for the gross sinfulness of the times during uh, time of during Noah. So we leave the realm of earth and we watch Christ go to the underworld and address not all the inhabitants of Hades, but only a small group of fallen demons who are condemned to be there due to the fact they're married, they married human women in the time before the flood. And commentators do this for the most part based on writings that they found in an ancient text that existed in 2 BC called First Enoch, which some scholars believe heavily influenced the biblical writers such as Peter and Jude, because that's also seen in his writings. And the main issue here is this, that the spirits here must refer either to fallen angels and the time in which Christ visits them is when they're in prison uh, thousands of years after being condemned by God for their acts, or there's something else going on. So that's the majority interpretation. That's what I just explained is the majority interpretation of our day. But what if the spirits here that we see spoken of in verse 19, what if the spirits here didn't refer to demons but referred instead to men? What if the time they were visited by Christ wasn't after they were placed in eternal prison but happened while they were still alive on earth? And what if the example here wasn't about what our Lord did after he died, but instead referred to something that he did before he was even born? And what if the example of the days of Noah was used because the righteous suffering that he endured while building the ark for some believe was 120 years was unbelievably similar to the condemnation Peter's readers felt when he was writing to them? And what if that kind of interpretation goes all the way back to Augustine and Jonathan Edwards. Then what you would have here would be more than just a disconnected kind of parenthetical statement that seem at best kind of vaguely related to the context. You would have a powerful incentive for holy living offered to us by the mind of the Apostle Peter that hits us right where we live and connects us back to the example of Noah, whom Peter calls in his second epistle a preacher of righteousness but we're going to see that next time, okay? Sorry for the (laughs) buildup. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the time we have had, and thank you for just the opportunity to work through this glorious letter and all the implications therein. Father, I know that the big takeaway, what you want from us the most, is to see the pattern of suffering to be like your son and that we too are to be like him. We are to understand why righteous suffering is better than sinning while we suffer. Father, we don't claim to understand all of the implications of this, but we do know one thing for certain, that you want holy living, that you want us to resemble your son, that you want us to suffer if it be your will at this time for good. Father, thank you that we don't have to suffer according to deceit, We don't have to suffer according to lawlessness. We can stand up for those things that your word tells us to stand for. But in all the daily ins and outs of life, from the home to our relationships with our spouses, to our 
relationship with our employers and employees for some of us, Lord, and even to our government, that there is a clear road of how we are to walk. I ask us to be given strength, and I ask us to be given wisdom, and I ask that we be given internal fortitude, a a kind of resilience that looks at the issues before us and decides to not sin and to love Christ instead. Bless us with this time. Let us draw closer to him, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.